happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 111 for October the 17th, 2018. My name is Wes Fryer, and I'm coming from you from Oklahoma City, even though I'm wearing my North Texas shirt, where I was like an adjunct for one semester. That's it. People in Oklahoma get hostile when you have Texas connections, but it's okay. We love Texas in our house. Um, and I am joined tonight by with Beth Holland, who is joining us from the east, from the northeast. And it is Dr. Beth Holland. And I, yeah. it's been a while since we talked, but I think you were just about to like, you know, well, you were just continuing the serious do nothing but write and sleep only a little bit and maybe eat. So congratulations Thanks. on the completion. Is, is it, does it feel as good as you hoped it would when you were in the depths of, you know, writing agony. despair. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it's, yeah. it definitely feels good to have, uh, I call, I, I finally call it the big kahuna. So the big kahuna shipped, it's out there somewhere in dissertation land. And when I can find it again, I'll let you know. That's right. They, we were asking they say if it was it will, out there in, online if, if it is, I'd love to know where. Yeah. It's, Academic publishing is not exactly at the speed of creativity. We'll just say that. So. No, I've learned so much about academic publishing not being at the speed of, you know, blogging. Right. That's right. Yeah. Well, we are the EdTech Situation Room. Uh, normally, Jason Neifer from Missoula, Montana is with me, but he is on extended assignment, uh, you know, gallivanting about the country, just evangelizing online schooling. Let's say that. No, he's actually doing a lot of work for the Montana Digital Academy. And we'll be joining in a few more weeks, but this has given an opportunity to have several different guests. And Dr. Holland is an outstanding resource for networking with wonderful with people. Um, she connected me with several folks, including Ty Campbell, a couple of weeks ago. We had a delightful conversation. And in fact, I need to connect with the Social Institute director. Um, boy, that is a, that was fantastic. And the digital citizenship work that they're doing at the Gilman School is mm. great. And this is Digital Citizenship Week, by the way. Shout out. By We're me. delaying our chapel talks and our focus a week because of just schedules. It's it's homecoming week. Yeah, it's homecoming tomorrow. But yeah. anyway, it's, uh, it's a good thing. I, I shared the video from the Social Institute with our student council at the upper school. And I think I'm going to share that in a chapel talk next Wednesday. And it is just really um, an outstanding balanced approach towards digital citizenship and really trying to help, you know, students see the, the ways that media can be used positively. And it's not just all about, you know, negative, negative. So thank you so much for your excellent connections. And we want to let people know that the job hunt continues. So if anyone yeah. out there <laughs> knows, what, what would your ideal position be if you uh, were to define it at um, a university? Well, I've been looking at universities. I've also been looking at a lot of think tanks. And, and in my short, my, my super short snippet, I really want someone who wants to pay me to read, write, think, and speak. Um, I'm good at those things, but I've been, I've been looking like at that. some, do you like that? I do. Uh, but I've been looking at a lot of different positions, particularly when it lets me, I feel like I'm in this cool spot right now where like I've been a classroom teacher. I've worked in schools. I understand reality. And then I now have this whole research background. And so I'm fascinated by that bridge. Like, how do we bring research and practice together? Because I think I almost feel like a linguist right now where I can speak both languages. And so I'm trying to find opportunities where, you know, I can bounce between those worlds and and serve as sort of a translator. And I've been exploring that a lot on the EdTech Researcher blog for the last couple of years where how do I take you know, like pretty dense research and then make it where at least like five people might read it? Um, that's right. As a goal, let's start there. So <laughs> let's start there. It's more than just mom at this point. Mom doesn't read stuff anymore. Uh, that's right. Like, well, we are going to talk about digital equity and the innovation divide. Yeah. There are several articles that Beth put into our show notes, which, by the way, you can find at edtechsr.com/links. This is episode 111, and as always, I'm sure that there are more links there than we will have time to discuss before we jump to a link for people mm -hmm. who don't know. Where have you spent the last couple of years and, you know, kind of how did you get to where you are today uh, professionally? Sure. So I'm in Newport, Rhode Island. And so I'm going to date myself, but this is fun. I just had my 20th college reunion this past weekend from Northwestern and uh, up it's closer to you up in, up in Illinois. So that was super fun to be back on campus and see lots of people that I hadn't seen in a really long time. And 
it's amazing how time stands still. I think we're all a little bit grayer, but other than that, it was fine. Just jump right back into things. Uh, but I've been here on the East Coast since then. So the last 20 years, I've been a classroom teacher, a director of technology in a preschool through eighth grade school, an instructor with EdTech Teacher since 2011. I still do some part-time work with them. And then, yeah, I started my doctoral work in 2015 and did the mad sprint and finished it in three years, along with a small uh, um, at right? Johns Hopkins. Yeah. yeah. So at Johns Hopkins, and I was in the entrepreneurial leadership and education specialization. So I took my background in technology and now added a leadership component. So the last few years, I spent a lot of time looking at, you know, what are the leadership supports and what are the communication supports and how do we look at like helping entire schools and entire systems implement change? So whether that changes technology or curriculum or something like digital citizenship, you know, what can we do, you know, from a research and practice perspective to implement that change systemically in a way where everybody's on the same page? I'm really fascinated with language um, a lot. So how do we make sure when we say digital citizenship, we really understand what it means in context? Like, does it mean more than just like stranger danger? You know, Absolutely. what does it um, The vocabulary that goes with that. And then how do we build vocabulary within a culture? And we're especially mm -hmm. thinking about how we would build that ac across grade levels. Because yeah. when, when you say that and I say that, we don't always. Yeah, we don't always mean things. the same things. Yeah. Well, um, on a point of personal privilege, since we're, we, we'll talk about the articles, but I, I am considering, um, how I might be, uh, maybe in the, you know, probably not immediate future, but maybe a few years. I mean, our daughter's a freshman and really happy where she is. But I, when I got my doctorate, I mean, I had thought that's, that university is where I wanted to be, you know, hanging out for five years in a college of education, working and, working with faculty. So beyond just the publish, 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 mm -hmm. any other advice that you would give to someone who is thinking about, you know, university roles. And I love, what did you, how did you say that? Pay me to think, write, and speak. I'm going to think, yeah, like read, that. read, write. Yeah, okay, read, read, write. Read's got to be in there too. I have okay. to read first. Yeah, this you is gotta read. Thing. Don't I don't write read. anything if I haven't read anything first, yeah, you know, it's like informed thoughts. Um, you know, I have no idea. I, I really don't know the first thing to tell you right now. I'm going with um, that. Like it's who, you know, and talking to lots of people. I mean, personally, what I'm finding is that I'm meeting, I've met some fascinating professors over the last several months who I have loved learning from. And so I'm more attracted by the individuals who have been super kind and generous with their insights. Actually one of your Oklahoma colleagues Terry Cullen has been phenomenal mentor oh, to me the last. Awesome. Yeah, she's fantastic. I met her at the Mike conference in Galway last year. Like we'd sort of like chatted on Twitter and then got to know each other. And she is a, I would say talk to Terry. She is a wealth of information. Um, but I've met just a handful of just amazing professors. And I think what I really enjoyed in the last handful is kind of having the confidence to be able to have a conversation with them. Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing I learned when I was studying for our comprehensive exams, and I think it's served me well in the last few months, is no matter what happens, do not fake it. Like you will get caught. These are brilliant people. They know their field. They're absolute experts. And the best thing you can do is just look at someone and go, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, could you explain that, please? Um, or, you know, be honest and someone, I can't remember now, I was asked if I knew something the other day and I said, the name is making me feel like I should know, but I have no idea. And I think you need to be humble and aware of where your knowledge stops. Um, That's that seems wise. To be, That's wise. Yeah, I am. Um, had a fascinating Twitter conversation with a professor a couple weeks ago and he very delicately like pointed me out that I had taken myself down a pathway that was completely illogical. And I just went, Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Like I, I'm just going to put up my hands now and go, Oh, I totally missed this. I thought I could hang with the big kids, but I can't yet. So thank you very much for your time. And I enjoy the conversation. I'll go back to something else now. Interesting. Um, well, you mentioned digital citizenship, and that is one area yeah. that I'm, I, you know, we have two people in our in our technology department full time, so <laughs> it's pretty aggressive with all the help desk. But the one of the biggest initiatives that touches on educational technology, and not really just technology support and networking, is digital citizenship from our head. And so I really enjoy getting to partner with our school psychologist. Um, we have a new one this year. 
but I, I actually think I want to, to write and publish more into that space. Um, I know for me on a consulting basis, uh, uh, I made a conscious decision in probably 2009. Uh, I think my first book was 2011 and that's when I finished my doctorate. But anyway, I was going to, I was to publish first and I did self publish. Mm-hmm. I, I really, uh, you know, there are, it depends on your context and it could be wonderful to, to work with a traditional publisher. But I think the days of needing, needing to work with a traditional publisher as a gatekeeper is really, really gone. And even if you work with a publisher, the amount of time that they're going to be marketing for you and all that is really going to be limited. A lot of uh, what you're going to need to do falls on your own shoulders, whether you traditionally publish or not. But anyway, I, I, uh, one of the things that I definitely want to do is, is do some more book publishing. Um, I don't know the degree to which that's going to, to impact uh, you know, world of academia. I know I've got to, uh, you know, get, get some journal articles and do that kind of thing. But it's interesting you mentioned Dr. Cullen because her, her role at the University of Oklahoma, I think is really a, a fantastic one and such an important one in terms of, of working with the pre-service teachers. They've got a really good iPad one-to-one project mm-hmm. there. And, you know, gosh, digital, digital literacy, digital citizenship, media literacy, you know, talking about cyber security, safety, like these are all things that everybody needs. And it's not just a small group of people. And I don't know the degree to which pre-service education, teacher education programs and education programs more generally are going to adapt to that, but we really need them to, I think. I was at a fascinating conversation last year at the South by Southwest conference with Renee Hobbs, who's a professor at the University of Rhode Island. Yeah, amazing in the media literacy field. And she raised a point that has just, you know, when someone says something and it sticks with you and you can't get rid of it. And I've, I've talked to her about it since then, but she made the comment of how do we have students understand algorithmic literacy? Especially with the rise of, you know, IoT and AI and machine learning. How are we helping our students to understand potentially whether it's the bias, whether it's the algorithm? Um, what are the things behind the technology? Because I, you know, we were talking about it even with things like some of these personalized learning systems. You know, if the system tells you you're learning X, Y, and Z, how do you know and what do you really think about that? And how is all of that shaping your perception of the world? And how do we make sure students are asking those questions? Um, one of the links I put in the document, and I'm not staring at it right now, but it's a, a study that was recently published from Data and Society, which is Dana Boyd's think tank in New York, where one of her researchers was studying the, I'm not going to say this correctly, but it was the, the perceptions of a conservative Christian group who has the cultural tendency to always want to go to the text. So she talked about script here, it is, I'm looking at now, scriptural inference in conservative news practices. And the the report is talking about how when there's a cultural belief that you should always go back to the text, right? You don't just take someone's interpretation, you should go to the source. That a lot of the people who have that as a belief don't necessarily listen to mainstream media. Like they do in terms of they'll have it on, they're incredibly well-informed, but then they say to themselves, nope, I, I have to take this with a grain of salt. I've got to go back to the text. The problem is because they haven't necessarily realized that search engines are not neutral, their search queries are leading them further and further down a rabbit hole. And so it's not that it's a lit, it's, it's not a traditional literacy challenge. It's not that they're thinking that they're going towards biased information. It's not necessarily understanding that the algorithm that's perpetuating and providing them the information is what's skewing because it's designed that way it's actually designed to take you down rabbit holes and increase your eyeball engagement and and time on time on the tube time on the tube it's funny i switched all of my search engines on all of my devices to DuckDuckGo. really a little over a year ago uh because you know i'll just to clarify like DuckDuckGo is a an actual search engine that still works on keywords and it doesn't have like the social profiling, it doesn't cache your history, it doesn't have any of those other things. And it's been a really interesting experience because it makes me consciously say, I need to use Google for this. Because it will, I'll get to a point where I'm like, wow, I'm gonna have to do a ton of reading and I kind of know what I already want. 
And if I Google it, it'll remember that I looked for it like eight months Absolutely. ago and it's going to pop right up. Yeah. And so it's become a very conscious decision. You're going to teach the machine and then of, and it's going to be part of your, your uh, bread, your digital breadcrumbs mm -hmm. that you leave out in the ether. Yeah. I mean, I'll add one other thing that's kind of fun, especially if people can set up a clean profile somewhere. So I've had a really good time just completely messing with my Apple news. So like very intentionally reading across a massive spectrum, like hard left to hard right and everything in between because poor Apple news cannot figure out what I want. Mm, right. I mean, the things that... <laughs> Those are fascinating issues for digital citizenship and the, the idea of, of having a start over, like how do you do that? Um, mm -hmm. We don't want to change our cell phone numbers, right? But you know, we talked on the show last week about robocalls and how they're just, it's exponential. Mm -hmm. It's doubled since January. And I mean, maybe the Pixel 3 and Google with the, you know, call screening or whatever, maybe, right. maybe AI will, will rescue us. Probably, you know, not everybody and probably not completely, certainly not well at the, at the start. But anyway, that it's, uh, you know, we're, it's almost impossible, uh, short of going in a witness protection program to do a do-over. And I, I think actually I'm doing a chapel talk Wednesday by myself. And then we're having our, um, our social media coordinator, who's a recent college graduate, talk a little bit about social media in college, navigating that, and then digital footprint and how that's mm -hmm. benefited him. And then I think Friday, we're doing three. I think Friday is going to be more the screen time, addiction, wellness, you know, talking about mm -hmm. that aspect. So my thing, I'm thinking about privacy and why we shouldn't be privacy agnostic. And, you know, I did, I did write a post um, <laughs> this last week about Chrome and just a real, it was a real pro, you know, Google rant, uh, anti sort of Microsoft Edge and Bing, because I had a bad experience with some stuff not being blocked. But, you know, mm -hmm. DuckDuckGo and Firefox Focus, for instance, are mm -hmm. two great choices. But I, I don't, I mean, I don't even, I don't even think that's probably 1% of the population that is doing that. And so I do enjoy many of the benefits with YouTube, particularly of sharing with me things I'm interested in. Like, remember when the Hawaiian volcano was just mm -hmm. going crazy? I mean, I was watching all kinds of Hawaii news just like almost every day. I mean, it was pretty yeah. exciting, right? Like that's a major event right. happening. So, you know, the recommendation engine was helping. But the other thing I wanted to say is you talked basically about radicalization and the ways mm -hmm. in which YouTube and these engines are, mm -hmm. are not necessarily going to, you know, direct you to um, a balanced approach, a balanced view, um, objective truth. Uh, they are probably going to amplify the conspiracy theory, amplify the mm -hmm. outlier. And so I actually think even talking with parents, but also with students, like we need to be aware of, of the possibility of, of, and I'm not even just, I'm not necessarily talking about radicalization, like as far as Islamic terror or something like that, but mm -hmm. our daughter, who's a freshman, We've had some really good conversations about like the landings on the moon and about other kinds of conspiracy theory. And some of that stuff's fun. And, you know, we've watched some episodes of Ancient Aliens and some other stuff. But, <laughs> wow, I don't know how many parents, uh, and this would be ourselves too, have really given that a lot of thought and recognized how the algorithm itself is designed for specific outcomes. And it's not to educate you in the same way that hopefully, right. you know, the school is. Well, I just think about when I was still teaching in the classroom and I was working with our fifth graders and the fifth grade does this great interdisciplinary pro pro uh, project where they did like a fakes and forgeries. So they all studied an artist and then they did a fake of one of the artists, famous paintings. We had a gallery exhibit, much fun. Well, it was, this was like 2006 ish maybe 2007. So this is earlier. Um, and then teacher comes running in and was like, Oh my God, we have a major problem. I said, what's going on? Well, the student used Google and Google told them the total wrong things. I'm the, like, okay. The library told them the wrong thing. But told them the wrong thing. And what had happened is, and it was a com, it was like a bad combo too. because it was Google and Wikipedia at the same time. And these were early days of Wikipedia, but the artist was Andy Warhol. Now, Andy Warhol was an artist, but he also was a filmmaker and an interesting character with an off-color personality, which, you know, an 11-year-old boy suddenly found fascinating. Um, I can imagine. You know, but yeah. So he came in discussing Andy Warhol's, you know, film 
prowess instead of Andy Warhol's art that he did. And we had to have this whole conversation. And one of the challenges that we had back then was helping students understand like Google's not a source. Absolutely. And, yeah. and I kept saying like, I would block Google if I could. Like, I just want that just to break the habit because they were starting to see, yeah, Google and library are suddenly like the same thing. And so we spent a lot of time talking where when they were doing research, we made them first identify like what type of source is what you need to answer this question. Right. So like, and they, it was middle school and elementary school. So, you know, what? an encyclopedia is a wonderful thing. So yeah. we would start with like, do you need an encyclopedia? Do you need a dictionary? Do you need a biography? Do you need and make them make the physical connection first yeah. because they just, I mean, it would have been like, I mean, we can date ourselves. It would have been like saying the card catalog told me, you know, like the microfish, the microfish, the microfish. Oh my gosh. I, I remember microfish. You mentioned Renee Hobbs, Dr. Hobbs. Yeah. Absolutely. One of my academic heroes, mm -hmm. the way that she has taken her, um, her institute, um, help me with it for media literacy. Um, yeah. And exactly. And she was able to take <laughs> that from university to university. You know, mm -hmm. Dr. Scott McLeod is as well, who's back at the University of Colorado. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, these are these are great people. These are wonderful academics doing fantastic work. I've really looked at uh, Renee Hobbs' conference on uh, media literacy and oh. literacy as perhaps you know a great conference I've, to attend in the summer. I've heard it's fabulous. I um, I'm doing some part time work for her colleague on that, Julie Quaro. Okay. And met her through a colleague and just, I love listening to the two of them talk about things because their approach and what they're looking into and how they're handling everything is just hmm. amazing. And I was completely fried when they had their conference this past summer. And when they asked if I wanted to come, I said, no, I'm going to the beach, but I, I would like to go. So um, a I was just cooked. Uh, maybe a thought. I don't know if we could pull it off, but you know, folks like uh, Renee Hobbs, Scott McLeod, they're very, mm -hmm. I think they're outliers in the academic community as far as how connected they are. And, mm -hmm. and in terms of their, their publishing and their work is, um, is far from, from limited to the hollowed halls of academe and, right. and journals and things like that. And I really, really respect that and want to, want to work in that same kind of space. So mm -hmm. maybe we could come up at some point with a, a topic um, to, to, you know, chat with Renee or some other academics and stuff, mm -hmm. because, you know, the, the wonderful world of podcasting and the ability to narrow cast in some, some channels and then, you know, connecting with some of those academics and stuff, who knows, because who, knows? who you know, and the connections that we make, there's, wonderful. I mean, there's all kinds of bad stuff that we hear on the news, but there's also all kinds of wonderful things that come from generous digital sharing and especially from getting to, to rub minds and ideas and just be able to, you know, connect with people who are passionate about things that we're interested in and, and then make those connections just like Ty and connecting to the social institute. Yeah. was one small thing, so, but that, those things happen. So I'm going to slightly change the topic on you, but I just finished reading and I've, I've, my new thing is to start blogging before I finish a book. So I only have one post up so far and I finished the book. Um, but is Julia Freeland Fisher's new book about who you know and the power of social networks for students. Okay. And it is a fascinating read. Um, I just finished it last week and have started working. I, I was talking to her briefly. I'm like, there's a few posts in here. There's so much that I have to wrap my head around. Good. But one of the things, and this is related to what we had started to talk about with digital equity is the role of someone's network is indicative of what their potential future opportunities could be. And so, Say that one more time. okay. So the, the size of, and like the power of someone's network, like their social network can be indicative of their future potential opportunity. Huh. So if you think about it this way, right? So like you and I are connected and then like I connected you to Ty, right? Because Ty and I got connected through Jen Carey. Jen Carey and I got connected through EdTech Teacher because actually I told Jen I had to meet her when we were at a conference because her blogs were so awesome and I introduced myself. So these connections, some of them are stronger or weaker than other, but by having this network of, you know, human connections, you can create opportunity. Now in this situation, whether it's because of geography, so maybe students who might be more isolated by either a tight rural or a small rural or a tight urban community. So like geographically, they start to get separated out. Maybe it's by socioeconomics. Maybe it's by, um, you know, some other demographic characteristic. 
students who don't have that network, even if it's through, you know, parents and extracurriculars and school and the things that get them out into the community will potentially have fewer opportunities down the road. Absolutely. Um, And so she has a fascinating look of like, what can schools actually do to help build student social networks? And I think it takes that notion of digital citizenship to a different place because it's not about any specific, I mean, she mentions a couple technology tools like NEPRI and uh, there was another one. I don't know. I can't remember the technology tools right now. So I was thinking more about what they were accomplishing in terms of how they're connecting students to individuals sort of outside the walled garden of school. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's who, you know, unlocking innovations that expand students' networks. Yes. Yes. Yeah, by Julia Freeland Fisher. Julia Freeland Fisher. Dropped it in the, the show. Perfect. Notes. So yeah, it's, it just came out recently. Um, I have a feeling it's one of those ones I'm going to have to read more than once. It's like I've, I've read it once and now I'm starting to go back through it a second time as I'm writing. Um, it's it's going to take me a few laps, I think, because I think there's a lot in there to unpack. Awesome. Well, there's an, another article that links right to uh, what we were just talking about as far as algorithms and algorithmic literacy. Um, this one I dropped in just, just right before the show. Um, Free speech in the age of algorithmic megaphones. This was from Wired Magazine on October the 12th, 2018. It's by Renee Doresta. And... Uh, this is referencing, you know, Facebook's takedown of political pages and accounts for violating terms of service, the ways in which we're seeing some social media, you know, companies reacting as far as our midterm elections and things that are that are happening. But, you know, our social networks were not designed. They were designed for virality and, you know, they're they're coded not to present a balanced perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, they're. And, and so how do how do we how do we navigate free speech and algorithms and social media um, because we're we are having censorship and, and you know the platforms have the ability to do that right they can establish community standards they mm-hmm. can you know they can do all kinds of things one of the fascinating new networks that I have um, played with a little bit is Mastodon. Have you set up a mm-hmm. Mastodon account a little bit? No, you told me about it and I started to well, dig into it a little there's bit. There's not a lot of people there. It's a federated <laughs> thing like email. Okay. So it's not like one company creates it. Just like email, anybody can run their own mail server and offer accounts. Anybody can set up a Mastodon instance. Um, and it's very Twitter-like, but Anyway, there's, you know, there's some very different rules and things like that that mm-hmm. people have for their different communities and the ways that those are going to operate. And, and it also it inter, interoperates or it can interoperate in the same way that, that email does. Um, so mm-hmm. anyway, I think this was this was this is very timely. And, you know, navigating this, um, it's our, our political environment is so fractured and social media is such an incredible amplifier of divisive issues and the fringe. And so whether mm-hmm. it's thinking about, you know, having lots of conspiracy theory or, or being radicalized as a, as a young adult or whoever, how, uh, however mm-hmm. old you might be, or, or thinking about the marketplace of ideas and democracy and <laughs> the, the real openness that we have in the West to, um, propaganda and to manipulation, right? Because I think the case, the argument can be made that, that Russia and other entities that wanted to disrupt and, and arguably subvert the election, you know, were using Facebook in the way that it's been designed, which is mm-hmm. micro target the specific audience and people that you want, you know, and then broadcast your message to them. So do you have an answer for this? How will we navigate free speech and, you know, censorship and, and all of that? you know, amidst the, the numbers of people that are online and the extreme, the extreme voices and the difficulty of defining bad actors. Cause that's one of the hardest things that, you know, how do you decide? There's a well, it's, for you. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I actually, it fell victim to, briefly at a very brief instance where someone followed me on Twitter and I got really excited. Like it was a big person with a blue check. Right. Like, I'm like, wow, that is fascinating. How did this person find me? Right. And like, that's just so cool. And so I messaged the person and was like, Hey, thank you so much for the follow. I look forward to learning from you. And it turns out I could tell from the response that came back. I'm like, 
that is not the kind of response I should have gotten from this person. And it turns out it was a total imposter account because at least I was like, or was it hacked? It could be a bit of a hack. No, it was an imposter account. So what I found. It was verified though. That's crazy. It was a, um, or did they make it look like, did it, they made it it look verified, verified, but it wasn't verified. And so I missed the little blue check at first. And this was a person that totally should have been, like it was a government official, like should have been verified. It didn't have the check, but it looked like the check. But then the reply that came back was totally not appropriate for a person of this stature. And I'm like, there's no way it's that person. So what I, this is where you have that digital literacy piece. So I look, I mean, I double check. I look up the name. The name is totally legit. I ran a reverse image search. And the reverse image search showed me that the image was actually not the person that they said it was. And it was just enough to trigger setting up a, imposter account. Wow. So I was able to block the person and then go back and report the person. But just by doing that, all of a sudden I started getting all these follows from all of these other imposter accounts using the same picture, but different wow. names. Wow. Yeah. yeah. But the complexity of how I, I think what's amazing is how do we help? It's almost like life skills. I kind of wish we almost just called it life skills and not like digital citizenship. Because, Ooh, there you go. Yeah. You know, I almost... Okay, normal's so different. Heard, normal's different. It's not digital learning. Different. It's learning. It's not it's networking learning. or not digital networking. It's networking. Just networking. I, I kind of think about when, okay, so I grew up in the South and it was very Southern and conservative and we took social in middle school and everyone had to take social. Was this yep, how, to, I, how to dance and, uh, oh yeah, how to dance, how to eat at the table, fork forks and knives, use, and yeah. napkins and ladies set with their ankles crossed. And like when we had our little dances, like we'd wear white gloves. I mean, this was, the whole, th- I know how to write a thank you note and they don't, or uh, in like an RSVP card when there's no card we to check. Still, we still have some of that. I'm trying to think of what that's called. If my wife walks by, I'll ask her, but it's, it, it's a thing. Yeah. It's like, it was like modern day cotillion for like. That's it. We still have the, cotillion. There's still okay, kids doing cotillion in yeah, Oklahoma was, City. Yeah. It was called, it was called social instead of cotillion okay. for whatever reason. But I almost feel like those were all these like life skills right. that we had to learn. And I feel like a lot of this needs to go in that category. How do you answer the phone and take a message? Like you know, yeah. how do you, or how do you look adults in the eye and shake hands? And right. you know, uh, those are critical and we'll hear, the, we'll hear the lament. I like that. I like that. Cause situating um, things in a context that people are already understanding, but saying, but now, but now you know, there's, I mean, I just think that there's, I almost feel as though we've done it a disservice by segregating it into a digital space where I think it's, yeah, life skills. Um, Good. Love it. Love it. You know, when do I know to knock on my neighbor's door and when do I call first? Right. Or when do I yeah. text first and, and when, and when do I actually pick up the phone mm-hmm. or when do I not put it in email because it's contentious and we have, you know, five years of retention on our email system mm-hmm. and anything that I put in this message for my school or organization could be right. in any kind of litigation because it's just a few mouse clicks to get mm-hmm. every message that, you know, meets that search criteria. I had to yeah, I, participate in something like that. As I had to do one of those too. And boy, mm-hmm. you know, people have said that, but having mm-hmm. that eye opener to, you know, oh my gosh, look, look at that. I just, I do not think adults or young people are recognizing how important it is to carefully decide the words that you put into an email uh, mm-hmm. uh, from that, from that kind of standpoint. Yeah. I mean, I sent handwritten thank you notes the other day, like there on paper there with a stamp. And it means so much more today because they're so rare, right? Um, I will say living in a house by the coast that doesn't have central air, I had to actually get the teapot to steam open the envelope because they'd all self glued themselves uh, to each other. Yeah. So it was a little extra. Little climax. Life skill. Yeah. Challenger. Use a teapot, steam it open. There you go. All shot. kinds of new, oh, doing it the old way. Yeah. They, they get the little whale oil and, you know, light the lamp and, you know, have the whole 1875 experience there. If you want. There you go. Okay. Well, let's talk digital equity and innovation. You have a bunch of articles. Um, where, what would you like when we've already talked about, I think that was the Dana Boyd article. Yeah. The data alternative facts. Um, yeah. It was what, group. what else you got some good Pew research and, and COSID yeah. resources. So where should we go next? Yeah. I mean, so what happened, this, this really ties back into some research I was doing as part of my dissertation into the idea of the digital divide, where one of the 
things that is starting to uncover, and it was noted first in the 2016 National EdTech Plan, is it's not just about access, but also about usage. You know, are students just, you know, consuming with technology or are they actually creating things? And that was how the National EdTech Plan really broke that down. And, you know, one of the, there's been several, you know, large empirical studies that were done in California and in Florida where they found that when they looked at differences across schools within districts, the access was almost, you know, uniform at this point in some of the more recent studies, right? Same numbers of devices, same amount of internet access. The challenge though was what were students using with it? So in more affluent districts, students were, you know, creating, engaging in inquiry, doing projects. And in less affluent areas, it was more remediation, drill and kill, um, or drill and practice kinds of things. And drill and, so, drill and kill works, I think we all know. Drill and kill works yeah. here. So that I started thinking about that it was actually a little bit more complex than that. And this is where this idea of social networks comes into play and social capital. Because just because someone might have access, do they then know how to form those social connections they need to be able to really put it into practice? So that all drove me to presenting at this um, higher education reform symposium at Johns Hopkins a few weeks ago, where the question was asked, as higher education sort of reinvents itself in a modern era, what role does it play in terms of civic responsibility? And there was a professor, his first name was Matt, and I can't remember his last name right now. Professor Matt. Uh, we'll put the, him into uh, the show notes later. Sure. Professor Matt from um, Penn, University of Pennsylvania, did a fantastic opening keynote where he really talked about how the original purpose of higher education was more about having this civic responsibility and how was it improving the community? And then over time, they became sort of the ivory tower. And how has that shaped society? So then I was looking at the effects of like, what could universities do in dealing with this idea of the digital divide? What role might they play? And while updating my research, that's where I stumbled onto some of those other articles I put in the show notes. One that just has really got my brain hurting is the recent study um, from the Pew Research Center where they actually found the mass discrepancies between rural, urban, and suburban areas. And the big statistic that they pointed out was that it's like tw almost 20% of residents in rural areas just don't do internet like at all like what? what yeah like no internet and so yeah and it's a pretty sh sh i went through the numbers i'm like come on this is clickbait right like what are you really talking about but that's where they came down to it it's about 20 percent of residents just don't access it are not we talking about phones. we're not we're not talking about schools we're talking about folks no, no, out talking in rural folks. areas yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Residents. Like, yeah. No, no, no. Residents. And right. well, even within schools, there's a lot of discrepancy in terms of quality of access, who has access, um, especially since the big idea of improving internet access is to lower the requirements instead of actually increasing the access. That was a fun one with the FCC recently. Um, we'll just leave that one Look there. Look forward to but, some change there, hopefully. In the yeah, hopefully. Future. Go COSIN um, as our advocacy group. So, but just really starting to think about, okay, if 20% of residents in rural areas just like don't do internet. And so I started comparing that study with a handful of others that have come out recently. And it re the gaps in terms of equity are astounding. Um, there was one, the ACT Center for Equity, like the ACT test, that one. Um, at last year, after giving the ACT, the students could opt into a survey. And it was basically asking them, like, how many devices do you have at home? How's your Internet? You know, some basic survey questions and some demographics. And one of the things they found was it's and I can't cite this one correctly, but it was close to 80 percent of students who indicated that they only had access to one device at home. That device was typically a smartphone mm -hmm. and they typically indicated that their internet access was like poor to terrible to unreliable. And so how those things start to stack up, it's just, I think the level of inequity is way more than what's been anticipated when it just looks, gets looked at in terms of access, because mm. I mean, I've tried to write a paper on a phone before. 
it's, you know, it doesn't go very well. Um, I've written blog posts on phones before. I can say that it's doable. It's certainly not great. Some media, um, yeah, sharing a picture, sharing a video, sure. But if you want to write something sure, like, thoughtful and you want to edit it. Yeah, but then according to that digital equity toolkit from COSIN, it was something like, you know, 85% of eighth graders say that they're asked to use computers for homework. Right. Well, that's great, but what happens when either you don't have a computer at home or you don't have access? So that's where, you know, they talk about like the homework gap. And so all of that data compounded together you know, really made me start thinking a lot about the challenges that I think aren't necessarily being addressed in terms of the complexity that they present. Because I think it's still very much like, do you have access? Do you not? But not what's the quality of your access? Um, from a higher ed perspective, I was reading a lot of universities, you know, you have a learning management system and a student information system and your stuff's posted online. Well, when your internet stinks, you know, like, good luck getting that stuff to load. Right, right. Um, 5G is potentially going to be a game changer. Of course, it's still going to be a similar sort of thing in terms of rollout. Where does it go? The mm -hmm. areas are going to be the last to receive it. Um, we've been, we talked a little bit on the show and I've been, you know, hearing a few things. I mean, the statistic that sticks with me is that, you know, on 4G LTE it, to, to download a two to three gig movie is going to probably be like 30 minutes today. And on 5G, it's going to be like five seconds, but the, the equity issues and the advocacy issues mm -hmm. like return on investment is not there for the rural areas, right? That's why we have, have electrical yeah. co-ops. That's why We've had all kinds of cooperatives in this country to provide those things for rural um, citizens, mm -hmm. not just wait for the market to respond. So I know you've got the digital equity toolkit from from Cozen. Yeah. Uh, what is the advocacy that we need to be doing around this, in your opinion? And uh, what would you like to see more of when it comes to digital equity? I mean, I think Cozen's doing a fantastic job in terms of trying to raise the awareness about access. And there's some great groups like Kajit and some of the others that are trying to get, you know, hotspots and access points and, you know, whether it's Wi-Fi enabled buses and those kinds of ideas out there. One of the, I was reading about the, I read about this in a few places. It was in the National EdTech Plan Higher Education Supplement, which came out after the original plan. So closer to 2017 uh, and looked into it from a higher ed perspective of, how do you create homework hotspots and learning centers? How can we start to work with businesses and other areas of the community, libraries that can provide internet access, but also some mentoring? Because I think that's the piece we can bring this all back to the literacy point. Even if we increase the access, what are we doing about the literacy? What are we doing about asking all of the questions? What are we doing about interpreting information? Um, I, I think that's the component where in terms of advocacy, you know, I'd like to see higher education more involved. Uh, what's the role of community colleges in supporting this? Um, how do we build more partnerships um, within broader communities? There was a Gallup survey. It was the Gallup superintendent survey, um, just which would seem like a random thing to bring in, but it, it totally ended up making sense when you synthesize it. So, you know, a big Gallup survey of superintendents, what do you need to support your students? And an interesting point was superintendents would love to be able to support their students on a high school to career pathway, right? With like certifications, technical degrees, really like, which I think is lacking, but with higher education support. And when they listed the typical areas where students go from high school to profession, that was like welding, plumbing, you know, mechanics, a lot of traditional trades. Then I saw things like coding, computer science, IT support further down. And that's what makes me think too, well, wait a minute, where are we advocating for students to be able to do high school to career with some higher ed support? And in those particular areas where, you know, like I know here in Rhode Island, they're adding all of these jobs that are requiring computer skills, and then they don't have the workforce necessarily to support it. So how are we building that pathway? And I think there's some non-traditional advocacy angles where we would be building capacity within the community and also starting to provide that literacy, because I think it's it's more than just access. I'm really interested in the digital literacy, media literacy side of it. In fact, I've been wondering with the hashtags, like 
my Twitter profile is a continually <laughs> evolving, you know, right. aspirational projection of who I hope I am <laughs> and will become. And so like, if you put a, you know, some hashtags in there, it's interesting because when people search for those people will come up in that. And so <laughs> I've had DigiSit for digital literacy in there. And I've been thinking maybe media literacy even more than digital literacy um, mm -hmm. because it is about media and it's not about digital, whatever, you know, form it's in. But uh, um, I'm super interested in how we need to have norms change in terms of what we are, the skills we are developing and cultivating in the ways in which we bring uh, media literacy uh, conversations into, you know, mm -hmm. ma mainstream. It's not just that's the technology course for the pre-service kids, right. but like in all the, in all courses. Cool. And it's not, and it's not just those that want to go be an IT support help desk or become mm -hmm. Cisco certified, or you're, you know, you're going to have, or you're going to be a, you know, computer science and you're going to, you're going to code. I mean, I don't know. I think there's a degree of that is we need everyone to learn algorithmic and computational algorithmic um, skills and computational thinking like that mm -hmm. needs to be mainstream. Um, and I, but I wonder what, what role there is in the modern university, you know, for that yeah. kind of a perspective. Cause I, I think like, I did not imagine pre 2016 election that the, the whole, fringe and the outlier and the way in which the extremes have been amplified by media, man, I, I really didn't see that coming. And I think I've been, you know, uh, probably maybe like a lot of people, I don't know, just really optimistic about Web 2.0 and the ways in which we're going to, mm -hmm. to give groups that have been previously disenfranchised a voice and all of that just being really, really positive. And so I feel like, you know, maybe like, I don't know how many other people feel this way, but it's like being pushed back in your chair by the incredible wave of negativity um, that we haven't been in front of. And it's, uh, these are puzzles that we're, we need to, to work well, through, right? Because algorithms are going to play a role, but education, like education writ large is going to play a role as far as helping citizens become more savvy and hopefully more critical in the ways that they can, we consume media and share media. Publish and media. I think it needs, but I do think it needs to be greater than schools. And I'm, I'm thinking, so I was in Italy several years ago to do some work and was there because it was the celebration of what they call Progetto in Vitro, which was a national effort to boost literacy rates. And in this national effort, it was the Ministry of Education, the Ministry of Pediatrics, the Ministry of Sanitation for some reason. I'm still not sure why they were involved, but they were involved. And essentially it worked all the way down to a mother goes in for prenatal care and the pediatrician's talking to her about literacy. Here's when you start reading to your child. Here's when you start bringing books in. And that idea, that comprehensive approach, um, because I think about, you know, like I look at my nephews and my godsons and my, you know, friends who have kids and everyone else. And, you know, some of my friends and siblings and relatives are like totally on the ball and they're talking about these things with kids and they're helping them start to navigate it. And in others, it's like, oh, my gosh, this is sort of scary right? because you're not aware and you're not asking the questions. Um, you know, I have, a, I have a cousin who I talk to quite regularly and she's like, I just don't even know what questions to ask sometimes. Right. Well, that's just why I've got to, I, I just feel like the only keynote I've done in the last, you know, year or so was Ohio. I got to go back to, to their conference and, you know, that was a digital citizenship. And then, you know, at school, we, we did these talks at church. I got asked to do these talks and, you know, my wife has been nudging me like, this is really a big deal. Like this, this may be where you really need to invest a lot of, of time and energy because, People are at a loss. They know they're mm -hmm. scared. They know they're overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. They perceive that the kids are further ahead than the adults. But mm -hmm. like there's so many conversations that we need to have. And there are so many things that kids don't know, right? Like even just when is it safe to meet somebody that you've connected to? And if mm -hmm. you're going to meet them, where is it? Is it in a public place? I mean, I have two teenage daughters, right? So we've had a lot of conversations about this. And it really, um, it, it, these are, these are, critical things. And I think the pace of change and the rapidity with which the tools change, the, you know, it's, it's, it's dizzying and mm -hmm. it's intimidating. And that's, that's like why I, 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 I've really started to say I'm a technology fear therapist because <laughs> helping people try to navigate fear. Cause you know, if we're scared, we're just, we're thinking reptilian brain. We're not, mm -hmm. you know, being able to sit back. And so, um, 
Anyway, shout out to Peggy George as well as Scott Summers, who are Scott Summer, who is in our chat room. Peggy just put in a resource. Uh, it was a webinar Monday by Tiffany Whitehead, awesome librarian, and it's uh, entitled "Fighting Fake News: Media Literacy for Students." And interestingly, she did use media literacy instead of digital literacy. So I'll drop that into the show notes as well. That was an I have web presentation. Cool. Edweb does great work. Um, I've actually seen them defined very distinctly. Like digital literacy versus media literacy. Okay. Like digital literacy being, you know, do I know how to essentially like operate and navigate the technology? Okay. Whereas the media literacy, I think was from my understanding of it is really more about, do I understand the connotations behind the different media types? Hmm. Where, um, where, the, where does where does critical thinking and and you know applying your your you know source validation and all that kind of stuff is that in one of those camps or another or is it in both? I, I mean, I think it's probably in both, but I think it's more when you're you know analyzing information and and assessing credibility and validity is more on the media literacy, whereas like the digital literacy would let me know well what's the difference between using Chrome or using Firefox? You know what's the difference between you know, if I decide to search with DuckDuckGo versus Google, what's the difference if I, you know, choose a Google Doc over a Word Doc? Um, like to be able to make those conscious digital decisions. Yep. That's good. Good stuff. All right. Yeah. Well, we uh, we got about 10, 10 or so more minutes. Uh, maybe we can hit a, another article two or two, and then we can uh, do sure. our, our Geeks of the Week. Um, we had a lot of Google news last week with their event that they did. Um, this is an article from Forbes on the top of the show notes from October 8th. Facebook's portal camera and the growing privacy concerns of bringing cameras into our homes. Um, mm -hmm. I know for me, we just have Google Home Minis, but we were able to get several because they're like, they were like 30 bucks on sale or whatever. It's a game changer for me, consuming media as far as podcasts, like being able to say, hey, gee, you know, um, like to, and, and it's like, I'm, it's Harry Potter, you know, because if you know the spell right, Aloha, right. you can say it in the right way, then it'll, it'll do stuff. Um, so Google announced a new um, smart device that, and what's it called? The Google Home Hub or something. And it has a screen, like a seven inch screen. They did not put a camera on it. And so there's been a lot of discussion in, you know, tech podcasts and things about that. Um, in this Forbes article, you know, they're talking about how, you know, normalizing this as far as, you know, here's this other, this other, cam this new camera. <clears throat> it's not just a baby camera or a crib camera or whatever, mm -hmm. but like, you know, maybe it's in the kitchen, maybe it's in your bedroom. It's wherever you want to be looking at a screen and talking to your smart assistant. Like this has some really big implications for us, you know, in a surveillance society and a society where cybercrime is just going to, you know, continue to grow. So Beth, have you taken the jump into smart assistants and do you have any I, opinions about cameras on your smart assistant? In our house, we are becoming a very rapidly non-smart household. Okay. Um, so have said absolutely no to any of the smart assistants. Um, phones, predominantly stay downstairs um yeah i'm i'm not a i'm until there's a lot more clarity and transparency in terms of what's really happening with data and privacy i feel no need to let them into my house yeah early adopters um, on this are doing are, so at their own peril yeah i'm i'm not this is one of those times when i'm not a I'm not an early adopter on that, and I'm not an early adopter on like the smartwatch. I have one that you know has hands and a little second that goes around. It's analog, um, it, and I, I guess I've become very conscious about. You know, I know the cynics will say, "Oh, you gave up your privacy when you got an Easy Pass and a credit card," and I used to feel that way, and now it's like you know I really can choose, and so I like to exercise that choice. Um, there was an article, I haven't read it yet, but Fozzie, the Family Online Safety Institute, did, I, try, I meant to grab it um, to add it to the show notes, and I, I forgot, and I'm sorry. Um, but Fozzie did put out an article about the new face, uh, Facebook screen that potentially is watching your every move and recording your every conversation. And from the headline, I don't believe it was overly positive. I think it was cautionary. Is this for Amaz about Amazon? About the new Amazon device? or I thought it was about the new Facebook? Facebook thing. Okay. I'm not sure the I know about that. 
I saw the commercials on TV and then I saw the Fozzie article. I thought that's what it was. It was like the whole, see, we have a dumb TV too. Like we actually watch the commercials. There's no fast forward button. It's Um, hard to go back. When I visit my parents, I have to be subjected to ads and it's really hard. We we have ads at three network channels and like, that's about it. So yeah, well, we saw the commercials for like the Facebook screen and it moves around with you and you can have conversations with people and it's all about like, how do we do this? And, and father's like, Hmm, let's, let's think about this a little bit more carefully. Right. Definitely. Wow. Um, well, that's a, I, I don't know that I have featured the family online safety Institute. Oh, they the have that I need to in, in our digital citizenship mm. resources. So certainly common sense media, you know, gets yeah. a lot of attention and focus, but um, are they, think, do you know much about their background and where they're based or their, I, there? When they first came out, I wrote like two articles for them. And this was years ago when they were just first building content. I know that they're a nonprofit and they're really, they're trying to, you know how common sense media is hitting schools and parents and students and family online safety Institute is really just targeting families and kind of providing that information. They're a little bit more specific in scope, but I you know anytime I have, you know, friends who are parents who freak out about something. I'm like, Ooh, go check out what they have to say. Yeah. Absolutely. absolutely. Well, here's two uh, quick positive articles to kind of counterbalance some of the surveillance and and hacking. And we're not even, uh, yeah, touching on, there was some, some pretty big, uh, well, I, I'll, I'll, I just listened to this on NPR tonight. This is fantastic. Um, well, I guess it touches on my geek of the week, but it's called winning and losing the code war. And it was an interview with John P. Carlin. His book's actually one of my, my geeks of the week. And uh, wow, there is just, there's such a war on right now in terms of the world of cyber. And it's a war for our information that, you know, um, criminals and uh, others that are wanting to profit from it are, are doing, but then there's also the level of nation state, code war and i love the discussion here was like what hack has had the biggest impact on the public's consciousness you know was it stuxnet when quote israel attacked you know iran and of course that was pretty i think most analysts think that that was also a cia you know kind of deal but a lot of people have no idea what that was um (laughs) there was another thing they mentioned that they talked about sony and they said the sony hack of with the north korean deal because of the salacious well they weren't necessarily salacious, but they were, you know, inside emails about the ways in which high profile uh, actors and actresses were handled in money. Anyway, that's the one that we really know about. But all that has become pretty normalized. And it's um, it's a great interview. And I am actually looking forward to, to checking out his book. But on the positive side, um, Jason Neifer, who's not here, but he had tweeted a really amazing national park resource, which is called the Lewis and Clark Trail from Space, NPS Story Map Journal. I love geography and maps and geomaps are one of my favorite educational technology projects. And so with 2018 being the 40th anniversary of the Lewis and Clark National Historic Trail um, and the 50th anniversary of the National Trail System and the 60th anniversary of NASA, all three of those historic events are being commemorated um, and so they've assembled these amazing satellite images documenting the important sites along the trail of Lewis and Clark. And of course, uh, Jason lives in Missoula, Montana. And so that was one of the spots where the, um, the voyage of discovery, you know, went and there's, there's great stories around all that. So that was really cool. And then I have not full disclosure watched this yet, but on my watch list for upcoming, uh, days is a MIT talk that is called Experiential Storytelling with Walt Disney Imagineering and the ways in which storytelling and media just completely open up the doors of amazing, you know, creativity and the ways in which that, you know, intersects with with movie making, but also gaming, uh, virtual reality. Um, Again, there's there are dark sides to all of those things, but there's also just Mm -hmm. some really exciting and positive so there's a couple positive articles to counterbalance some of the more negative things that we've talked about. Shall we do some geeks of the week? I think it is the top of the show. Sure. All right. What do you have for us? We talked a little bit about some of them. Um, so, yeah. So, the, I mean, the two I wanted to add in, especially since it's Digital Citizenship Week, um, one is Renee Hobbs has a new project that she did with the European Union called Mind Over Media. And it's a whole site to help teachers teach students about the idea of propaganda. 
And it's a, it's a fascinating site. I only dug through a few parts of it. There's all kinds of free teacher resources there. And then what's, what is really cool about it is the idea that you can, it crowdsources. So you get more and more resources. So maybe you have your students go out and try and find examples of propaganda and they break it down. Like not all propaganda is bad. Like when is like a public service announcement? When is that good propaganda? So, you know, your students can go out and find examples and then contribute it back to this growing database. And there's like all kinds of very cool things in there. And then the other one, and I haven't spent as much time with it as I would like, but there's a relatively new program called iCivic and it's, game-based learning about civics and they sort of I don't know I kind of stumbled across them on on Twitter and and that just seems like a really cool thing to get to know more yeah and we uh we have a thing in our middle division middle school where on leap years they just take the day to to have teachers teach collaboratively some lesson that they're passionate about that ties I don't know if it I think the thematic and we did the election this last year so I got to partner mm -hmm. with with a teacher and we used an iCivics um, oh, cool. interact, interactive game. And then we had the kids doing things with social media and, and taking a look at messages that, that candidates were, you know, promoting on their channels and things like that. So yeah, I know that it is, it's a great resource. Cool. Well, we also put the Julia Freeland Fisher book, who you know, Unlocking mm -hmm. Innovations that Expand Students Networks on the list. Um, I have a, a couple that I threw in. The first one I have not downloaded, but uh, I, sometimes look for, you know, new AI related apps on the app store. And uh, this one came up. So I am actually not endorsing this and I cannot even verify for the, I mean, I assume this is safe for work and whatever, but it's called Uni Magic AI Friend. Relax in a magical world. Uni is something else in a fantastic way with deep chats, relatable stories and fun games. Your unique AI friend can make you feel relaxed inspired and loved so for all of us who had an imaginary <laughs> friend and we left them in the past now you can download the app to your smartphone and, and it's also interesting like to what degree is this ai right that term talk about vocabulary it gets thrown around a lot i think it's right. just probably an algorithm is it really using machine learning uh i don't know but you know some of the the comments here you know, um, it doesn't just answer questions. It asks the kind of random quirky question I enjoy. <laughs> um, and then we talked about, you know, just anyway, how much it feel, made me feel connected. It's, it's kind of weird. Um, and we're, I think in Japan and some other countries too, we're on the, we're either in the space or we're soon moving into the space where, you know, elder care is going to involve robotics. And yeah. so anthropomorphism and the ways in which we ascribe human-like, um, you know, dialogue, emotion, and all these things is it's pretty fascinating. So there you go. If you check that out, uh, hopefully it's not going to be really bad. But I, I probably should, in my own, you know, self-interest, have, have explored it a little bit more before <laughs> sharing it. But um, the other thing was this John Carlin and Garrett Graff book, um, which links to the NPR interview that I mentioned, their book is called Dawn of the Code War, America's Battle Against Russia, China, and the Rising Global Cyber Threat. Um, John P. Carlin was a prosecutor for a number of years and then was like a chief of staff for uh, the director of the FBI. Um, I also put a link in there. I use a tool called TweetNest, which is an open source PHP-based little program that you can put on a hosted web server if you self-host your own WordPress or whatever. Uh, and anyway, it just makes it, uh, it, it creates a, a personally searchable archive of all of your tweets. So oh. I use the hashtag book to read um, for books that I want to uh, read. And so it is there and you can check out some others as well. And I think that's it. I put Peggy George's Tiffany Whitehead webinar that she mentioned the fighting fake news media literacy for students. So Beth, where can people find you, read you, when we people are gonna be yearning to connect with your mind more Me. after listening to our engaging <laughs> podcast. So where can people find you? Well, tomorrow I'll be at MassQ, uh, the Massachusetts Computer User Conference. And I'll be at Ina Call next week if anyone's in Nashville and the EdTech Teacher Summit in two weeks. So if anyone wants to find me in person, I'll be there. Um, but otherwise I am BR Holland everywhere. I have embraced my middle name. So I'm brholland.com. I'm at brholland on Twitter and brholland on LinkedIn. And that's it. Yeah. All right. And I, I'm easy to find. 
Sounds great. And I am Wes Fryer, W Fryer on Twitter, speedofcreativity.org sometimes. Uh, we'll definitely be posting some new stuff on our school digital citizenship website, which is digsit.us. We rolled out a new responsible use policy for our students. And I actually, they've, we videoed that chapel talk. I don't think I have received the link yet, but we'll be doing that series of three chapel talks, which will be shared and hopefully will be uh, of value. And if anybody has feedback and ideas for privacy and how, how we should go about encouraging folks not to be privacy agnostic, which I really don't think kids are privacy agnostic. I think that the use of Snapchat and some of these other more ephemeral media, you know, sharing platforms is in part a reflection of that, but it's something we're going to need to advocate for and not simply acquiesce to whatever corporate and, and government security entities are wanting us to do. So this has been the EdTech Situation Room. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks to Scott Summer and Peggy George who joined us live. And if you would like to join us live, normally we are here at 9 p.m. Central. Tonight we are a couple hours early, which is actually nice for me as well. I'm actually going to head back up to school and test our live paging system because I can't test that during the regular day. So better to be doing that now. But we are oftentimes here at nine, but sometimes the time will change and you can always get the latest time by following us on Twitter at EdTechSR. Check out all our show notes at EdTechSR.com. And perhaps uh, we, we want, want to have you on the show again. So who knows where where you will be. But do you have a part of the country that you're like, you want to stay? You want to stay in the Northeast, I'm going to guess? I think we'll be in the Northeast. I'm sort of yeah. looking Northeast. And then every now and then I get persuaded by like Chicago, Denver. Yeah. Denver's um, nice. We were there visiting uh, our son. But there's a lot of good choices in the Northeast. So Yeah. Yeah. And will you be at Atlas this year in Dallas? Are you? Gonna oh, be yes. I believe I will be. I've April. been chatting yeah. with the wonderful folks at Atlas. So fantastic. Well, that will be yes. a great opportunity, hopefully to, to chat in person and see lots of other great folks. And we'll put the link to the Atlas conference in the show notes as well. Shout out Perfect. to them. It is wonderful, especially in the world of independent schools and technology. Yes. All right. Well, everybody All right. stay savvy and be safe until next time. Thanks for having me. Thank you.